Hey guys, uh, good morning. I hate to be the bearer of bad news and cut off conversation, but feel free to pick back up later on. Um, hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, can you see me? Did we pull the lights down too much? Feel good? Okay. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3 this morning, and uh, we'll have verses on your screens, but as you're turning there, if you have your Bibles, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Jay Freimeyer, and I'm on staff here at the church. And like Jeremy said, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you would join us this morning. Uh, if you've been maybe even coming a few weeks and we haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. So feel free to come down, introduce yourself, and I'd love to hear a little bit of your story. So please do that um, before taking off today. Um, again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 23. And before we jump in, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Father, we ask that this morning that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us ears to hear. We know your spirit is with us, and we ask that your spirit would illuminate the words on these pages and open up our hearts to receive the word that you would have for us this morning. May I decrease and may you increase in our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if I were to poll the room, I am positive that very few people in here, if any, would say that they enjoy conflict. Conflict. Now, there are certainly people in the room who might be better at handling conflict. Perhaps they're more experienced or they're better at engaging someone who is in opposition to them and hearing their side of the story, giving them grace, not getting emotional, not getting worked up. Or maybe their personality is one that just says, you know what, I don't enjoy conflict, but I know that it makes me better, so bring it on, okay? Maybe that's you. And yet there's others in the room that even when I say that word, conflict, conflict, like your soul cringes and, and you're like nervous that someone is disagreeing with you on anything, like your favorite ice cream or like what restaurant we're going to go to after church. Like you cringe at like anyone having an opinion other than yours or them being mad at you because they said something the opposite of you. Now, the majority of this sermon was actually written six months ago. So I was preparing to preach that first Sunday that we shut down, right after Baptism Sunday. And I was looking back, and it was almost comical to think back on the conflicts that we were dealing with then, like the average person would have had then, versus the conflicts and tension that we feel now and we're experiencing now. And if we're not careful, like we can look back and think like that was like some utopic world we were living in because of the conflicts and tension that we had versus the ones that we have now. Now, here's the reality. God is unfazed by all of this that we're experiencing now, and he's still clearly at work among us. And Jeremy just shared one story. If you're at our covenant member meeting last week, we shared other stories of God at work among us despite everything going on around us. My point is simply this. I have yet to hear anyone say, you know what? 2020 is just the best. Like, I just love all of this conflict and this tension we feel, I hope 21 is the same as what we're experiencing now. Nobody said that. And if you're thinking that, would you please come talk to me and tell me the secret to life after this? So why do I say all this? The book of 1 Corinthians has us in the middle of a conflict right now, and at times it gets super awkward. Paul is working through this conflict that he has with this young church, and they seem to be either, be either disinterested in what he has to say or they think that they need to be on to higher things, that whatever Paul is offering them in his teachings is not enough for what they need. 
And so they're disinterested. So Paul, just to add fuel to the fire, he tells them that he wishes they were ready for those things, but they're still of the flesh, chapter 3, verse 3. In the verse before that, he said he fed them with milk because they couldn't handle solid foods. So they are still acting like infants or babies in Christ. Now consider how this might have been received. They're, at, they're having this conflict. There's this tension. Paul says, I wanted the same things you guys want, but you're acting like babies. That's essentially what's happening. So consider how that might have landed. They probably would not have enjoyed that comment. This is the on-ramp for our text this morning. Paul is telling these young believers that the current disputes they're having, who's the best teacher? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who's the best baptizer? You know, in chapter one, they're talking about, well, I was baptized by this guy. And Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. Paul, just a few verses before verse 10, Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. So Paul is saying, who cares? Who cares who is the best earthly teacher? Who cares who baptized you? I love it in chapter one, Paul says, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, actually, I baptized this guy and that guy and maybe that. But he's saying, I don't remember. And that's encouraging to me as a minister because I don't know, I don't remember all the people that I've baptized. I'm, I'm sure any minister would say like over decades, like they forget who they've baptized. But Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God gives the growth. So then he gets to verse, I believe it's verse nine, and he says, you are God's field, God's building. And then he builds out this metaphor of an architectural building being built. And so that's what we'll be discussing this morning. So let's start reading in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to make some observations, and then we'll consider what those might mean for us today. So observation number one, Jesus Christ is the foundation for the church. This has already become a theme here in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 117, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In chapter 122, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In chapter 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what a good reminder for us this morning. We can be so tempted to stake the foundation of Providence Road on something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few examples might be doctrinal fidelity, financial stability, and numerical growth. Now these things, they are important. They are so important, but they are not the foundation of the church. So what happens when we swap these out and we try and replace the foundation of the church with one of these things? If doctrinal fidelity is our foundation, then we will be tempted to puff up with pride and look down on anyone that does not look and think like us. We will discredit the work of God in other churches and other denominations simply because they disagree with us on non-primary issues. If financial stability is our foundation, we'll pursue comfort and security and measure success based off of how big our bank account is. Or even worse, we'll become greedy and we'll refuse to participate in the mission of God throughout the world. If numerical growth is our foundation, we will always be chasing after the latest fad, the biggest and best thing to draw in crowds. Now, these things can be indicators of a healthy church. We would certainly not say, we don't want to have any money, or we don't want to have any people, 
or we want to have poor doctrine. We would not say those things. They can be indicators of a healthy church, but they are not the foundation of the church. It's not what the church is founded on. So that's one level. And then on another level, we must consider the context in which Paul is saying these things. He's talking to young Christians, to new believers. When he first arrived on the scene to plant this church, he didn't try to win them with anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. And sometimes we just complicate this. We make it bigger than what it needs to be. Now, if you've been around Prov Road long enough um, to be here when we first moved in, it wasn't long after that that construction began across the alley here, right? So um, it was about, what, we've been here almost three years, and it feels like there's been construction this entire time across the alley here. So back in January of last year, the crew working on the project, they were digging out the base so they could lay rebar and pour a solid foundation for the building they had constructed. What they didn't know is that the foundation of the property adjacent to them, it didn't go to the edge of the property. And so as you can see here in this picture, something terrible happened. You see that? That's not, that doesn't look right, right? You guys see what's going on here? So what happened was um, up to the edge of the property, there was a utility run. And so it was basically a hollowed out tunnel that you can send pipes or cables through after a structure is built so you don't have to bust up concrete. Well, the guy digging in this uh, property here, he didn't know that. So he's just digging along. He's in this little thing here, whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called, but he's digging out. Dirt's coming out. And then all of a sudden, the building just collapsed, and it nearly crushed him. It nearly crushed him. Thankfully, he got out alive, and it was fine. I was actually across the street over here getting in my car when it happened, and dirt and debris flew everywhere, and these guys started yelling because they thought their coworker was just crushed. And uh, thankfully, he was okay. But this is what happens when we don't build on a firm foundation. It's true of our homes. It's true of this construction project across the street. It's true when your kids are building Legos. It's true of this church. It's true of our very lives. The foundation is the most important part of any structure. And if your foundation is not solid and secure, the building will eventually collapse. So for Paul, this is just basic, simple math. You can go ahead and pull that, that down. For Paul, it's basic, simple math. Either you have the gospel of Jesus Christ as your foundation, or you do not have a church. He is the foundation of the church, Jesus, or you don't have a church. So for Providence Road, is Jesus Christ the foundation of our church? Are you tempted to replace the foundation, what you think should be our foundation, with something else? For you personally, as an individual, is your life founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to build your life on other lesser pursuits? Now, what does this mean for our mission here in Norman, Oklahoma? We contextualize our, our unbelieving friends and neighbors. We get to know them. We engage them. We learn what they enjoy and like, and we spend time with them. But are we getting to the place where we actually communicate the gospel to them? Can we say with Paul, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? If we don't, what are we doing for them that the world is not already offering them? They probably already have friends. They already have relationships that are kind to them and are generous with them and that like them. But if Jesus is not the foundation of their lives, they have this cancer of sin and you have the cure. So offer it to them and appeal to them to receive Jesus. So I urged us to consider some of these questions that I'm about to ask in our last sermon, but I I think I was preaching to a camera in the corner over there, so I don't know how many of you saw that. I'm going to keep putting them before you. First, what are you offering to people for hope? Like when you talk to someone that is broken and is hopeless, 
and their life is falling apart, what is that first thing you say to them? Hopefully it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, or I love you. But, but after that, like what, what are you offering them? Like what is the hope that you're extending to someone? And if it's not Jesus, why? Why would you not offer them the greatest hope we have to offer? Are you saying, thinking, and doing things right now that will ultimately harm your witness and the name of Jesus to your unbelieving neighbors and friends? Does your allegiance to a political party or even your own personal liberties make the name of Jesus sound bitter to your friends and to your neighbors? What are you doing now that is planting a seed for the gospel that God will one day give water to and, and cause to grow? So with the gospel of Jesus Christ as our foundation, it's important that we consider these things. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So observation number two, the formation of God's people matters to God. We could put it another way, considering the, the book of Ephesians. Jesus Christ loves his bride, the local church. Now, what an encouragement this would have been for this ragtag bunch of young believers that are just getting everything wrong and fighting over petty things. Through Paul, God is saying to them, my desire to see you formed into the image of Christ is greater than your own desire. Like, have you had seasons in your life where you just seem to not be able to get anything right and you're, or you're struggling with a certain sin you just can't conquer and you just want so bad to overcome that. I believe Paul is saying right here that your desire to see yourself overcome that pales in comparison to God's desire to see you overcome that. God's desire to see you formed into the image of Christ is greater than your own. So one question that I've been considering uh, in these verses is, who are the builders? So he's, he's building out this picture for us of this structure being built. We know who the foundation is. We know who the structure is. But who are the builders? We know that it's not Apollos. From 1 Corinthians 16, 12, he says that he strongly urged Apollos to visit them, but it was not at all his will to come right now. I also don't believe that Paul is just talking to the highest levels of leadership in the church. Like he could have just said, hey, you elders and deacons, you know, this thing's going on, you guys get it together. At other times, he addressed specifically elders and deacons. So I think it's more than that. On the other hand, I don't believe that we should just individualize this for ourselves and say, hey, we should go build on uh, build our own little structures, our own little houses for ourselves, and be apart from the local church. Instead, I believe that Paul's referring to anyone within their local body who's contributing in any way to the building of the church. So Paul's not, warning is not just for the church planner or the itinerant preacher or the missionary who came through, anyone who's teaching and building up on this. It's for anyone who contributes to the building up of the body. So in our context, it's for the MC leader. It's for the kids teacher back in the back. It's for, man, my guy, Nate, back on security right now. The people running the sound booth. Um, those who are fervent in, in, in prayer, the men and women who are fervent in prayer, and they don't want to be seen, but they're faithful to pray for, for each of us. If this is true, what does that mean for us who participate in these things? Well, first, it matters what you do for the kingdom of God. What you do matters. Perhaps your giftings or in, those, in the roles that you serve, you may think they're just insignificant or they're unimportant, 
But Paul would disagree. What you do matters here. Our encouragement to one another builds us up. Our regular reciting of the gospel to one another strengthens us. Our prayers on behalf of one another shows that our love for one another imitates the love of God that we have received. Our intentional discipleship with our peers and those younger than us in the faith shows that growth in others matters to us like it matters to God. Our mourning, our weeping, and our rejoicing with one another shows that we are unified in and built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that's been laid. Even the wounds of an open rebuke from Proverbs 27, 5, and 6 are ultimately seen as loving when they come from a trusted friend. In all of this, we are building a solid structure on top of the firm foundation of Jesus that will one day withstand vigorous testing. So there's also this other side to this. And just to be honest, I just don't know what to do with it. We can't be sure what loss will be suffered for those whose work is burned up and doesn't pass the test. What we, we do know is that, that salvation is not at stake here. Paul doesn't say the person is built up who builds uh, poorly. He says their work is built up, okay? So I don't believe there's like purgatory in play here or even that like if you don't do it right, like you're going to hell. I, I don't believe that. But I also don't exactly understand what Paul's saying. But I do know this. Ultimately, it's for our good and for the glory of God when we actively participate in the building up of each other within the church. So let us pursue those things. Don't be driven by fear. Let us pursue those things because it's for our good and for his glory. So Jesus loves his bride, the local church, so much that he gave himself up for her and her continued formation, the building up of the body, it matters to God. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to us that we are formed into the image of Christ? So let's keep reading in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So observation three, this is an easy one. God himself dwells within us. So let's look at a history of where God has dwelt throughout the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with his new creation. After the fall, God tabernacled among his people. A temple would later be built, becoming another temporary home for the presence of God. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. This is in John 2, verse 19. Jesus had just gone through and he cleansed the temple and made a bunch of people mad, overturning tables and driving out those who were profiting off of the house of God. And he says in verse 19 of John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. To which the Jews said, what in the world are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this building that we're in, and in three days, you're going re- to rebuild it? Well, in verse 21, we see he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the Son of God was the perfect embodiment of the presence of God. His body, the temple of God, was destroyed, but not for long. In three days, he did what he said, and he rebuilt the temple of God. So in 1 Corinthians 3, fast forward to where we are today. What did we just read? Do you not know that you are now God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, again, let's remember our context. He's not at some pastor's conference. He's not at an IMB service, sending service for a missionary or fill in the blank for whatever you think is like a super Christian. He's not talking to those people. These aren't even Jews who've been studying most of their lives. He's writing to a raggedy bunch of immature believers who are bickering over who teaches and baptizes the best. Sexual sin is rampant in their church. They aren't caring for the weakest among them, and they're getting drunk at the Lord's table, okay? So these aren't the best folk, right? 
and yet they are the dwelling place of God. Think, think on that for a moment. They, these people that we would probably look down on today, they are the dwelling place of God. Why? Not because of anything they've done, right? Not because they've reached this certain level of spiritual maturity, not because they're the cream of the crop, because they aren't, but because God in his kindness and his mercy, his love and his grace extended toward them, sent a former murderer to tell them about the love for them that God has for them in Jesus. Like a master builder, Paul built this solid foundation and other faithful men and women have come and would continue to build on top of this foundation. And God decided that these broken people would be the holy place where his spirit would reside. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if like things are going great for you or if like you hate your life because everything's going on or like your kids are wearing you out, school flip-flopping back and forth or daycare's getting canceled or whatever, your work. I have no idea. I have no idea what you are experiencing right now. But what I can tell you with confidence this morning is that if you are in Jesus and you trust in him through faith, I can say with confidence, do you not know that the spirit of God dwells within you? Do you not know that the spirit of God dwells in you? Now, like I mentioned before, much of this sermon was written six months ago. And again, that was like right after baptism Sunday, which was so cool. And so I was reflecting on, um, man, just that day and how, how great it was and how uh, we got to hear stories and testimonies of God's faithfulness to save new people um, and bring them into the family of God. And so part of that process in, in baptizing someone is we, we ask for their testimony, their story. And we're, we're essentially just asking, hey, what has God done in you? Like, what was your life like before Jesus? How did he save you? And what does your life look like now? And so for some people, that can be an uneasy conversation, and they're like unsure of what they need to say. And sometimes it's because they just want to get it right. They don't want to say anything crazy or heretical. And uh, yeah, they just, want to, they just want to get it right. But here's the deal. I kind of want them to say something crazy. And you know, we may come back on the back end, depending on how heretical it is, and say publicly, like, hey, you know what, you know what Jimmy said here? Like, Jesus is actually going to return. You know, I know he said he's, you know, we haven't heard anything crazy like that, but there may be times where we come up and, and, and correct something, but, but usually it's not, it's not that crazy. And the reason I'm okay with them saying something crazy is because that is their story right now. Like, I simply want them to articulate what faith in and obedience to Jesus looks like right now. Now, would they say it the way that you and I might say it, like how Jesus has saved them and what he's brought them out of? Would we say it the same way? Probably not. But listen to this. The Spirit of God resides in them now to the same degree that he resides in you and me, right? There is no other prerequisite than you must believe in Jesus. That's it. Until Christ returns, God has chosen us, the people of God, to be the place in which his Spirit would dwell. Young, rich, old, poor, sick, healthy, of all races, of all nations, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all levels of faith in his Son, all denominations and local churches, the only prerequisite is faith and belief in Jesus. That's it. So God the Father calls us to himself on the foundation of his son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, and we get to participate in the building up of his most precious treasure, the bride of Christ, the local church. Let's keep reading. This is verse 18. 
Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Peter himself builds upon this later in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of this divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish salvation for us and bring glory to his name. Those of us now who follow Christ belong to him, and in him we have every single thing we will ever need. All things are yours in Christ. I recently came across this sermon by Greg Gilbert, who is a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where he shared an experience he had when traveling to a closed country in East Asia just a few years ago. So when he went, he met a friend there, and his friend took him to a local Christian bookstore. Again, this is closed country, East Asia. His friend asked him to tell him what he noticed in this bookstore. And he didn't, he didn't think anything crazy initially. He saw books by pastors and theologians he respected. Many of the books that he was seeing, he was familiar with. He, he knew those books. His friend asked him what he didn't see there. And he went on to say that something that you won't find on a shelf of a Christian bookstore in this closed country are books about the church. So his friend began to explain to him that the government of this country knows that if Christians are just individuals, they are not a threat. If they only care about friendship and discipleship and daily Bible reading and so on and so you name it, if they're just individuals, if we just see our lives like in this individual circle, unaffected by those around me in a local church, he said, they are not a threat. But this government knows in this closed country that they become a threat when they organize because their allegiance is to a different king. And this is our reality this morning, brothers and sisters. We are so tempted, aren't we, in America? Not because we have a closed country where they refuse it, but because we can basically do whatever we want. We're so tempted to individualize everything about our lives and structure our lives as individuals where I'm unaffected by anything anyone else does. And that's exactly what I believe the evil one wants to do to us. But brothers and sisters, our allegiance is to a different king. And the conflicts we're tempted to divide over begin to lose their grip on us when we realize and remember that we are in this together. So may we organize, may we come together under the banner of Jesus, because our allegiance is to him, the one true king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that even in this book of 1 Corinthians that we're studying right now, that like you haven't put before us the best of the best, and it's encouraging to us because a lot of us feel broken a lot of the time, and yet we have value and we have worth because of what you have done for us in Jesus. And you put 
You put down a down payment on us, Paul says in another book. You give us your spirit as a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance in you. So for my brothers and sisters in the room this morning that maybe have trouble believing that right now, would you help us to believe? Help us to believe that that we have value and worth in your kingdom. And then more than that, that we would all participate in the building up of the local body here at Providence Road, that we'd all seek to take part and have a role in the kingdom here. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.